Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, the first of 2020, we head back to our usual format as I chat to a fantastic new guest for the show. I was introduced to today's guest by a mutual client of ours, by Stephen Aldridge and Denver McCann, at Numeritas, who, having worked with him firsthand, knew that he would make a great guest for the show. So who is it? Who is today's guest? Well, today's guest is Rob Garner, serial entrepreneur, board advisor, and most recently founder of Garwood Solutions, the advisory enablement and delivery consultancy focused on performance improvement in the professional services sector. Having climbed the ranks in KPMG, Rob along with his co-founder, Martin, decided that the time was right to leave and launch their first business, Avail. Starting from nothing, they grew the business to over 70 people in just five years, ultimately selling Avail to Tribal Group in a rather unique deal that we go into detail on in today's show. In joining Tribal, Rob took another step up, taking on the role of managing director for their newly formed 350-person consulting business and faced the daunting task of consolidating a collective of previously distinct public sector consultancies 
while also steering the business through one of the worst markets the public sector had ever seen. Having started his own firm, having built and sold a second, and now advising a range of consulting businesses on how they can successfully scale their own firms, Rob has seen it all and has a wealth of experience that he shares in today's conversation. We cover some really interesting topics in this one, including the unique deal that Rob and Martin created with Avail and the importance of building the right operating model when it comes to scaling a consulting firm, how Rob and his management team were able to successfully navigate that public sector downturn during his time at Tribal and his lessons to others facing tough times in their own businesses, and Rob's advice that he gives to the consulting firms that he works with now, and what you can learn from his experience to help you grow your own business or your own career. I really enjoyed speaking with Rob. He had a ton of advice and insights to share from his journey, and it was great to get the chance to dig into these and learn the key principles that have helped him build the career he's had. I really hope you enjoy today's conversation and that hearing Rob's story will encourage you to take that next step in your career, be that climbing in your firm or striking out on your own. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rob Garner. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, been a good day spent with you. Obviously, we're we're here at a, a mutual client, Numeritas's Indeed. office. Been a busy afternoon for us, but really looking forward to this. Like I said to you before we started, Stephen and Denver that they knew about my podcast said you'd make a fantastic guest, and they said get you on. You were kind enough to volunteer, and I'm I'm really looking forward to. Well, that's very kind of them and you. So obviously, we've got to know each other now a little bit through today and, and sort of previous meetings. But I'm I'm very conscious that. For my listeners, they may may not know or come across your businesses. So for those who maybe don't know you so well, could you just give a, a brief overview of your career and how you got to where you are today? Yes, of course. So very briefly, early career in IT consultancy, five, six years. And then in the mid-90s, found my way into KPMG, into the public sector advisory practice, worked there on a range of things for a period of time, became a partner after a while, and took over running KPMG's work in the sort of national security sector, which I led for a number of years. I subsequently left KPMG after the sale of KPMG Consulting to Atos Origin. I worked for Atos for about a year post-sale, and I left actually with another former KPMG partner to set up our own business, a company called Avail Consulting, which we took from kind of startup, you know, two former partners, a little bit of money behind us, but no clients and no colleagues. And we eventually sold that business sort of five, six years later in 2010. We were 70, 80 staff and, and uh, quite a substantial business. It was a management consulting practice uh, in the public sector. And we, we kind of specialized very much in that respect. I, at that point, when we sold the company in 2010, we sold it to the tribal group and I joined the tribal group, joined the board and took over running their other advisory businesses, which were six or seven or, uh, at that point in time. We packaged those businesses up and actually sold them on to Capita sort of 18 months later, and I left at that point. Joined the NHS, actually as I joined the NHS on the advice of my wife, I had been offered the role and was havering over whether it was something I actually really wanted to do, and my wife advised me that it was about time I did a real job, having spent most of my career advising others to that point. So I joined the NHS at a really interesting time. So I joined the NHS in 2012 at the outset of the Lansley reform and the 
complete kind of transformation of the commissioner side of the NHS, abolition of PCTs, abolition of strategic health authorities. And I took responsibility for the implementation of, of that uh, initially across Norfolk and then subsequently across Surrey and Sussex and uh, basically the creation of the successor bodies. And I was chief exec of two of those successor bodies in that, in that structure. And then in 2014, basically, I returned to the tribal group to take over running what I'd probably call the retained businesses, the bit of tribal we didn't sell to Capita in 2011, uh, which was basically a global education software and services company. And I did that for three years. And then for the last three years, I've now had a much more kind of plural portfolio life with a small number of, of non-exec positions and some kind of consultancy advisory, but all around the kind of professional services uh, businesses and typically with kind of what I would think of being sort of scale-up type businesses. Well, that, that gives us a ton, ton to jump into. And I warned you a little before is we may well jump around as we talk yeah, of course. And, and dive into things. But I, I do want to start right, I guess, right back at the start and almost yeah. just before Avail. Because I think the, the interesting thing I find in, you know, with, with be it clients of ours, be it other businesses I know, and also just people in consulting who are looking to start their own business uh, many start at the point where they're on the track for partner and they, they choose to step off to, to launch their own business. I'm quite interested because you, as you said, you, you were a partner at KPMG Indeed. and almost for many, that's the, you've made it to the peak of the mountain. And I'd be fascinated of what was it that led you to, and your, your colleagues to say, actually, you know, we, we want to leave what was a, a big corporate or I think KPMG were a little smaller, but a, a sort of yeah, corporate no, no. business and go and start on your own and almost trade what I can only assume was sort of relative safety, a good Indeed. salary for no salary. Uncertainty. <laughs> Uncertainty, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I think, um, so I set Avail up in 2004 with, a, as I said, another former KPMG partner, a gentleman called Martin Wilson. And Martin and I had worked closely together in KPMG. I think what we saw, though, was you know, an opportunity actually in the market at the time so we're talking about an era where, you know, not only had KPMG Consulting been acquired by Atos Origin, mm. you've got the EY deal, you've got the IBM, got all of the big four, with the exception of Deloitte's, were divesting themselves of their consulting businesses broadly into SIs at the time. And I think you've then got two things going on. You've got a bit of what I can only describe as probably corporate indigestion in the SIs in terms of trying to absorb in these consulting businesses. And in the case of Atos and KPMG, you know, KPMG swamped Atos in the UK. So it was almost a reverse takeover. And that, that created its own set of problems. But equally, you then got a kind of division of service agreement with the former accounting firms to keep them out of the market. So what we could see was, well, there was no less demand, particularly as we, you know, we were operating in the public sector, there was no less demand for public sector services. But you've got some of the traditional providers had now been acquired by the SIs and, and actually were much more internally focused on the transformation and the integration. And then you've got the, the, the sellers of those businesses in terms of the audit firms that, that were precluded from entering the market. And we could see that there was, a, there was a window of two or three years there where actually that was going to persist. And we had an opportunity to form a business. And we, yeah, we had an opportunity to scale a business in that period. And that, that became our objective, to make sure that we were a player in the market as those things resolved themselves and the SIs got a grip of the, the, the businesses they'd bought, but actually the accounting firm started to come back. And of course, that's exactly what happened. But by the time it happened, you know, we were an established part of the, of the infrastructure, as it were. 
when you explain it there, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. So I guess, was it, was it that clear to, to you and Martin when you, you were formulating that idea at the pub or wherever it was that that was coming together? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Starbucks, actually. But yeah, <laughs> yes, I, I, I think it was that, that clear. You know, I think it was, there was an, a moment in time where you could see that there was, a, there was an opportunity. And you know, were we, to all intents and purposes, brave enough and bold enough to take that opportunity? And that's what we did. That became the impetus to say, well, actually, we need to do it now. Because actually, if we don't do it now, that moment will have passed. That period won't be there and won't be available any longer. And we wanted to take advantage of it. And this is more just because public... The, I, when I worked in consulting, I worked in financial services, so the private yeah. sector. And I guess my, my limited knowledge of the public sector is there's a lot of framework-based contracts. Indeed. And there's actually... There's quite a time, a sort of gestation period. You've got to get on the frameworks. You've got to bid for the framework contract. Actually... How did that form a, a, or did it form a part of that sort of business planning? Because that's the... Indeed. I think if I was listening to this, that would be my question of, great, I'll go out on my own. And obviously you would have, you would have had a small burn rate, but it's not infinite. No. How, how did you structure yourselves? And how, how did you get that first project to get Avail going and then, you know, the growth that followed? Sure. So, so I think we did two things. So what, what, one thing was that we sought and secured a little bit of VC backing behind us people that were prepared to back our business plan because we didn't have a company, but we did secure some, some VC backing, which was very helpful. What we also did was sort very early partnership arrangements with organizations that had access and routes to market and, and actually, as it transpired, one particular organization that meant that we could quite quickly access opportunities through those frameworks because we saw that as a barrier. Even if we'd got you know, the relationships, the skills, and all of those sorts of things. Ultimately, it has to be contracted through a vehicle, particularly at any scale. And, you know, we therefore needed access to, to one of those vehicles. I mean, it was, it was one of the sort of standard government kind of catalogue frameworks that was around at the time. And, you know, through a partnering arrangement, we were able to access you know, a kind of position on one of those very early on. And that was immensely helpful to us in terms of being able to uh, sometimes contract stuff that we could develop outside, sometimes access stuff that you know, we weren't actually developing, we were responding to. I love that approach because, like you say, it short circuits what yeah. I guess would hold back if anyone's listening to this in the, and looking at the public sector. That, you know, that's obviously their key concern. And almost, how, how did that relationship work then? Was it that you were, were you co-branded as you know, a Veil plus partner name? or was Yeah, it- we, we, we had a couple of uh, different approaches. So mm. typically if we very crudely brought work to them, because it was work that we developed, but we needed a framework agreement that we could contract it under. We tended to use one brand structure, typically Avail-led. If we were doing work where we were genuinely kind of partnering with that organization and we were part of their supply chain, then they're brand-led. And, and that was fine. But but most things were co-branded. It was kind of who, who, kind of who was the lead and who was the subsidiary brand in that respect. I assume then as part of your, and we'll, you know, we'll come on to the growth because I think there's a fascinating story there. I, I take it that part of your growth was on the side building your framework agreements to almost get at the right point for you and your partner sort of separate out. Is that is that the way it worked? Yeah, to a certain extent. So we tended to then, from our own kind of direct access point of view, you know, after a period of time, because you know, being the public sector, it took a little while to do. Mm-hmm. But after a period of time, we then sought perhaps more market-specific uh, framework agreements that enabled us to access certain contracts. The, the framework agreement that we'd worked under originally was much more kind of broad, generic, pan-government. And then we slotted in other frameworks effectively under it where we were then the direct party to it. So, 
in health, in education, actually in national security. And then it jumps forward a bit, but I, I, I think the growth journey is going to be fascinating because I, again, my, my limited knowledge of public sector, you know, you've mentioned around the frameworks and those, those are quite rigid. And actually, when I think of fast growing businesses, I think of either deregulating markets or regulated markets sure. where there is a lot of increasing competition. So you look at the FS space and that's breaking up all over the place. So actually, yep. there's, there's a lot of opportunity. And my sort of very naive assumption would be there's only so many public sector opportunities but obviously you grew rapidly over five years i mean you you grew to what, 70 before you slightly more but yes that sort of order and actually, actually how, how did you how did you approach that growth was that always the goal for you or was that something by virtue of the demand that you then sought to fill so i suppose the honest answer is a little bit of both yeah we set out with a with a business plan which said we secured a little bit of backing for which was incredibly helpful that business plan was for a high growth business it wasn't necessarily for the business we created, but it was for a high growth business because we'd identified that kind of window in the market in terms of what the, what the market was doing around us. And actually, if we didn't scale in that kind of three-year window, then we weren't going to be a kind of part of the landscape going forward. We weren't going to be a player in the market, and that was our objective. So we did scale quickly in that initial period, but, but taking advantage effectively of confusion or turmoil in what was effectively the supply side of the equation. You know, there was no less demand. It was just the supply market was in a little bit of kind of internal flux chaos. And you know, we'd seen that on the inside in KPMG and Atos. We kind of knew what that looked like. We knew what was happening in the kind of audit firms in terms of their preclusion from the market. And it was a case of, well, that, that, is, a, you know, that is a window. But that's what we want to execute. So we had a clear vision from the outset. We had a clear business plan. As Martin and I would both admit, you know, we set out a business plan and by hook or by crook, somehow we delivered it, you know, <laughs> and we delivered the growth that we intended to. And we had a five-year plan, basically. That's really what we had. That planning bit, and it's interesting because I've had other guests on the show who have, have built and, and sold firms. And you know, I'm thinking John Morehouse. Yeah, is yeah one absolutely. Who I, you know, yeah, yeah. Very I know much we, so. we both know. And he he talked a lot about in, in, in his interview about the planning and the importance of that. And actually... Maybe that it's an interesting angle actually to step back and in terms of that planning, because obviously to get VC funding, you, you had to have a, a plan of a certain substance and rigor that you know, would secure that. And actually, how did you structure, how did you go about that planning and structuring it? And then almost how much or how little of it did you stick to as you built the, built the firm? So in terms of uh, plan, I think we, we, we did a couple of things. So we, we were very clear about what markets we wanted to work in. And that was partly based around our own market knowledge, our own market reputations. Um, so, you know, broadly, we sort of said, actually, there were four markets we were really interested in, which was kind of home affairs, foreign affairs, education and health. We looked at other markets and we had dalliances with them, but we didn't really ever kind of pursue those markets particularly. Uh, we set out a, a financial plan. I think the financial plan clearly was the product of the rest of the planning. The other thing that I think we were really clear about is we almost didn't write down what we were going to do. We wrote down what we would never do. So it's very easy if you say, oh, yes, we're going to do this, to then when someone comes along and say, well, but can you do that that's a slight extension of this? You go, yeah, we can do that. And then someone else comes along and asks you to do something that's another slight extension of that. And suddenly you start to kind of dilute what you're doing and, and you lose a bit of focus. So rather than kind of defining clearly almost what we were going to do, we put some parameters around it and said, we'll never do that and we'll never do that and we'll never do that. And if you can show what, 
a couple of examples of what that, that oh, looked so like. So one of the ones that sticks in my mind is, you know, it would have been very easy for us to have moved into kind of perhaps some of the more, we, we, we definitely moved and we were very much established in the sort of technology-based change. It would have been very easy for us to move into kind of a broader change. It would have been very much, very easy for us to have moved into kind of but perhaps some of the other sort of specialist allied areas around HR and things like that. And we said, look, we're never going to do that. That's not where our specialisms are. Yeah, actually, a lot of what we did had a quite a commercial focus to it in the delivery of our services. Um, and that that's really what we wanted to do. And we delineated, uh, I, I kind of remember one particular afternoon, kind of, you know, we had two flip charts, one what we were going to do and one what we weren't going to do. And the one that what we weren't going to do was longer than the one that we were going to do. But it, it meant it kept focused. And... I'm not sure either of us ever really reached for it, but occasionally we'd kind of remind each other about what was on that list of things we weren't going to do. And it enabled us to qualify harder in terms of, therefore, opportunities that were presented to us, whether we would pursue them or not, because it was, you know, it, it meant we had a greater focus on, I suppose, keeping true to what we set out to do. And it's interesting, you said it sort of sounds like the list kept you, you honest, but were there ever times when someone came to you and said, well, we've got this huge contract but it for you, obviously, in your head, you're thinking it's on the no list. Actually, how if they did come up, how did you deal with those? So I don't think anybody ever came up with a huge contract that was on the no list, to be fair. <laughs> but that, that might have been a, a greater test of kind of um, moral judgment or whatever <laughs> and, and our kind of commerciality. Uh, but people did definitely come up with kind of mm. smaller opportunities. And I think we had quite a good, in my opinion, kind of qualification process, quite a rounded perspective on, on whether we were going to bid for stuff. And we were pretty rigorous in its application. And that became one element of it, you know, actually the service itself and our kind of knowledge of it and understanding of it is, is a key part in anybody's qualification. But but it got kind of used in that way. So did we ever do anything that was on the no list? I probably. Um, <laughs> did we ever do anything significant on the no list? No, we didn't. Well, and it's, I said we'd jump around because I think it's an interesting thing when I look at some of some of the consulting business have been on this show and, and just others in the market that there is a, I guess the, you see some who grow by those bolts on, you know, we, we'll start in this industry, we'll, we'll move on to that industry and the other. And I'm interested about, and this might be the advice you give to your clients now, it might be from your time at Avail or Tribal of almost why did you stick in such a focused way to that one or the you know, to the yes list and not look at moving out into some of those areas that some might say are actually you know they're good parallels they can yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can transfer what we do what 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 for you was that driver and why would you advise others to do it now so so we we essentially ran the business from very very early on on a 4 by 4 matrix we had four markets and we had four core services you know, and you know, simplistic as it sounds, there was more than enough work available as you kind of develop the breadth of that. And you know, if you did a, a kind of rag rating across those 16 boxes, you know, they were never all green. You know, uh, and <laughs> therefore, there was always opportunity. And you know, as I said, we, we had those four key markets of kind of home affairs, foreign affairs, education and health. And we had four key service lines. We had a, a strategy and business planning team. We had a performance improvement team. We had a supply chain team and we had an IT advisory team. And we stuck pretty rigidly to that as our kind of solution set. 
and we stuck pretty rigidly to those markets. Did we drift out? Yes, we drifted out a little bit. But actually, all of our business planning was always done in the context of that kind of four-by-four matrix. And it was always about what services, how could we leverage, how could we cross-sell services where we were strong in one market but not in another? How did we take something from home affairs to foreign affairs or vice versa and all of those sorts of things? And we structured our business planning, we structured our half-year reviews and all of those sorts of things around saying, well, okay, so how do we level up almost across this? And, and how do we not quite saturate, but how do we level up across that kind of four by four? I like the matrix. I like the, the level up metaphor, I guess, to sort of keep with that. Because the other thing, obviously, you grew the business very quickly. So like you said, more than 70 in five years. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's phenomenal growth. And actually, what for you looking back were those, I don't, we talked before about inflection points, yeah, yeah. You know, level up points, inflection points yeah. where the business changed. And actually, was it revenue? Was it people? And, and, and how did you respond to that? So it was people. And I think what we always tried to have was an operating model that was one size bigger than we were. So we were always growing into an operating model, not growing out of an operating model. And I think we went through probably two main inflection points in that. I think there was an inflection point at about 20 staff. And I think there was an inflection point at sort of 40 staff. But actually after we got through 40, we felt that the, the kind of operating model we'd moved into with the tool sets that we'd built to support it, you know, actually, we're going to carry us through to probably 100 or something like that. Now, we sold before we kind of got there sort of thing, but, but we had a settled operating model. But I think, yes, that was the impact. It wasn't revenue. It was definitely people. And it was people that tripped those changes. And I think if Martin and I did anything in that was... We were mindful of it, and we were trying to stay one step ahead of those operating models. That was a, that was the approach we adopted. I want to pick up on the the operating model piece in a moment, but I'm interested. Is there twenty and forty was what happened? But what was it that was that seismic shift? If there was something you can put your finger on, what you know, what was it that changed at twenty, changed at forty, that was so different? Sure. Um, so I think it's a little bit about process, and I think it's a little bit about the clarity of the operating structures for actually the people that you're bringing into the business. You can't manage a business of 40 in the way that you can manage a business of five. You have a different relationship with colleagues. You have to have some intermediary structure. And that structure has to have clarity and people have to have roles in it and all of those sorts of things. And it just, we found, it just tripped at those two sort of numbers in terms of actually what you devolved into that management structure, how you then manage the business changed. And as I said, if we did anything, we slightly preempted that and made sure we were growing into an operating model, not growing out of it. And that point, I said I'd come back to it, is quite, a, I think, quite an important one as well, because you're not the first guest who's highlighted that as a, a key factor. But the interesting challenge for me there is, you know, we both speak to consulting firms all day, every day, and the consistent theme for everyone in consulting is you, you're flat out doing client work and you know, as, as someone running the firm, you're flat out doing people management and, and all yeah. the other bits. Is actually, how did you make the time for that and almost build in that forward-looking piece when there's a client pitch that needs doing, yeah, there's yeah, a contract no, no. that needs writing? I, I, absolutely. And, and those things did need doing and, and they needed, yeah, absolutely. So, so I think there were a couple of things for me. So w one of which was that with the benefit of a little bit of funding behind us, we were able to set our own utilization as the two founders of the business at sort of probably about 40% or something like that. We, we never, we ne never, I'm sure that's not true either. We rarely sold ourselves 
to be anything much more than that. You know, and that was very deliberate. And, and I think w- what we recognised was that to have a successful business, we needed to spend as much time, if not more, working on the business as we did working in the business. And if we worked in the business too much, that was going to be at the detriment of the business development and working on it. And okay, it fluctuated and it was never 40%. It was always plus or minus. And if, if one of us was up, the other one of us was down type thing. But, but it was a deliberate policy. Touching on that growth, just to help me more for the next question, so it might be a dead end, is the VC piece, was that at the start and then it was organic from there or was the VC funding sort of involved throughout? So, so the VC funding... Or increased throughout would be the better phrase. It wasn't increased. So it, was, it persisted. You know, it was there. However, it, it was all upfront. We took no additional funding. We were funding our growth off balance sheet by the end of the first 12 months. There's an interesting cash planning challenge there. If you're growing so fast, obviously you're growing partly off sold work, but partly off perceived demand. And actually, how did you balance that to achieve those growth goals, but not go for it and and go broke just through cash flow? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think cash flow was a challenge in the first year, even with the sort of VC funding. We did grow quite quickly. I mean, we, we were... 25 staff at the end of year one Mm. something like that and obviously the vc funding helped that growth enormously in Mm. terms of what it uh, what it enabled us to do i i suppose we managed it carefully you know i I can think of one particular time towards the end of the first year where you know there was almost a daily kind of cash look but actually it didn't persist for very long and we had forecast our cash burn pretty accurately you know, we, we, you know, part of our business plan wasn't just a, yeah, a glossy front end. It was quite a detailed financial model, and the detailed financial model had got a, had got a cash flow forecast in it. And you know, we kind of knew what our cash burn rate was going to be, with some reasonable assumptions built in around, you know, how quickly we'd take people on, how long they'd be on the bench, when we'd start to see cash flowing from work that they'd do. And I think if you take conservative estimates to those sorts of things, uh, again, I emphasise with the benefit of a bit of backing behind us as well then we were able to manage it but but yes i mean in the first year it was towards the end of the first year it was something that was um quite uh, we were quite conscious of and it might be that or it might be something else but with hindsight we've talked about what went well and obviously yeah, yeah. It, it worked out for you is almost it might be something you tell your the firms that you sit on the board of now but what if you were to do that again what what are those things that you might change do differently or or, or maybe not do at all Great question. So I think things that you would carry forward, you know, one of the things we did was kind of invest early in our own kind of management tool sets. And they evolved over the first year or two. And um, we're actually talking about an era when sort of what one would now think of as being sort of PSA didn't really exist, mm. you know, it wasn't there. and certainly wasn't there in an integrated form. But the concepts that we built our own kind of funnel and pipeline management tools, we built our own resource deployment and tracking tools, yeah, we actually utilized a very good uh, project accounting tool. They weren't joined up. They would be joined up today, but 15 years ago they weren't. But we had them. And actually we also had a pretty relentless kind of governance about their usage. You know, So, so we, we, we absolutely made sure that we'd got the tools in place from very early on to, to kind of manage the business and, and know what was going on and be able to you know, forecast with some degree of confidence. We typically used a rolling 13 weeks. If we could forecast with confidence of 13 weeks, that was 
manna from heaven. It didn't happen that often. But actually, the shorter the period that you got, then the kind of slightly more nervous you got. But having the tools meant you knew what to worry about and, and you weren't kind of basing your estimates on a bit of instinct, a bit of gut feel or whatever. You were basing your decisions on, you know, what's the volume of sold work? What does the pipeline look like? What's our realistic conversion rate on that? How many people are on the bench? What's our spare utilisation? And, you know, we drove that hard. I would absolutely do that again. And we'd, we'd have better tools now, but we'd do that again. Yeah, that's a key part of it for me. The other thing that I would do again is we recruited well. And I think that was essential for us, quite frankly, particularly with a view from us that we were going to, you know, Martin and I wanted to work on the business as well as in it. It wasn't a vehicle just for us to be the consultant. It was a vehicle to grow. And that's what we set out to do. And therefore recruiting well and recruiting well early was really important and I think we succeeded I think we you know we built a very good team I'm sure a lot of your interviewees would say the same that actually it's all about the people at the end of the day and I think we were fortunate that that you know we were able to stretch out the long arms of Rob Garner and Martin Wilson and touch a few people and say come and join us and we did and they were great people to do so but we also recruited very well from the kind of general market and and recruited yeah, strong, talented individuals that had, you know, in equal measure kind of business development, strong delivery skills, and all of the sorts of things that we would all articulate make a great consultant. But we also recruited a, a great set of people in terms of their sort of shared values and culture. And how did you, we'll come back to the what you wouldn't do, but how, how did you do that? Because it, it it sounds like you got the right people on the bus. I've just been reading Jim Collins' Good to Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic book. And so, you got the right people on the bus, but what was your process for making sure you, you got those people and tested, like you say, make sure that they're good delivery, good values fit, and, and all, of, all of the things you highlighted? So from again, from very early on, we set out a, a kind of recruitment process. Um, it was good for its time, whether it would stand the test of time now, someone else to judge, but it was good for its time. It was pretty rigorous. We had, in effect, everybody had three interviews and an assessment centre but we did it in two visits to the business. So you only ever came and saw us twice. You came for a first interview, and in that first interview, you would typically have a, a meeting with two individuals. You'd, you'd have a, a little bit of, of a technical kind of test, not a formal test, but an interview. And you would also have a kind of what we described as being a sort of values interview. You know, actually, let's, let's test out. To the extent that you can. And I think, you know, Values and culture are a kind of manifestation of behaviours. So we're looking at behaviours of people and how people would react in certain circumstances. So we'd look at behaviours and we'd look at sort of technical and CV kind of stuff in the first interview. That would weed out quite a lot of people. And then people would come back for a second visit. Second visit would then be an assessment centre. We'd put all of that together very quickly, you know, actually during that second visit. Then you would have a final interview. And, you know, that final interview would be, uh, one of two things it would either be we've decided to hire you and this is incredibly warm and how do I sell the business to you or it would be we're pretty unsure and we don't think you're for us but I'll let you down gently you know um so it sounds a bit crude but but by that stage off the back of the first two interviews in the assessment center we sort of knew everything we needed to know yeah it's interesting to hear that and the I guess that depth of the the amount of people they meet, because I, I, I've had previous oh, guests yeah. talk about the, it's easy to fake it in front of one, but actually across three, it's much harder. Couldn't agree more. So, so I would suggest that in the course of a typical interview for us, people would have seen five or six people because actually part of the assessment center process was always a presentation. Didn't matter what you were coming to do, there was a presentation. 
And we always had at least three people in the presentation. So you would have a first interview, an HR or values interview. You would have an assessment center with with a presentation with three people in it. And you'd have a quasi partner interview, director interview at the end of it. And we always felt that was really important both ways. So really important for the firm to have multiple eyes on you. Really important for you as the candidate in that process to meet a range of people and for you to have eyes on a range of people. And I think whenever we didn't do it, and I can only think of one or two occasions, we regretted it. And this is, I mean, this is a live challenge I'm having. As we're growing, we're trying to hire. Yeah. And I, I guess maybe this was just on your no, your, you know, will not do list of almost, there must have been times where you just sold that piece of work. You needed five consultants in two weeks or in a week or tomorrow. And you're just thinking, we don't have time to do that. How did you and Martin make sure you stood true to the process yeah, that yeah. worked? Because I think we just knew we'd regret it if we didn't. You know, what's that kind of expression about kind of um, something in haste, repent at leisure type stuff, you know? If we'd have recruited people in haste, if we'd have not followed the process we set out, I think we would have then, you know, we'd have then regretted it after. We knew we'd regret it after. And actually, it's much easier to run a business mm. with, you know, high quality, motivated team players that you have taken time over than it is to sort out the myriad of delivery problems because you short cycled your recruitment process, you brought in some people that don't share those values, don't share those team ethics, and now suddenly you've got quite a significant client problem that you're trying to sort out. You know, I'd rather take the time up front. No, no, it makes, makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm conscious I, I, I jumped in while you were giving the, no, the no. do's. Are there any more do's or is if not, I'd love to hear the don'ts. No, I think, so, so I think the, the, the kind of, you know, Good systems recruit well. You know, actually live by the data, and you know, be clear about what you're going to do and where you're going to do it. You know, I do all of that again. The don'ts. I'm not sure there are too many. Quite honestly, we probably, if I'm honest, lost a bit of time and market in terms of a bit of partnering that probably wasn't terribly beneficial to us. But I think broadly, you know, that they're those sort of core elements of. You know, plan well, plan deeply, remain focused, recruit well, have the systems that are that are kind of giving you the lead indicators of where you're going. I would absolutely do all of that again. And now I don't know how much of this you can can talk about, but I'm really interested to find out about the actual the sale process. Sure. Because again, something that I know my listeners or a group of my listeners are, are interested in, be it either they are people like yourself when you were in avail looking to potentially sell or or they're earlier on and, and and just thinking about options is people hear the sort of the end of a sale you know it was sold for for this ebitda and and these numbers but that's sort of the end of a very very long process and i'd be i'd be fascinated of to actually understand how almost that end-to-end sales process where you decided to sell where you met tribal and almost how that how that negotiation piece yeah. worked so, so it, it it's a little bit of a different story, I think, to the ones that you will have heard before. Okay. In that we, to all intents and purposes, had sold the business before we set it up. So our VC was Tribal. Ah, okay. So Tribal backed us as a VC with a contract that was a 10-year contract to back us with an expectation that neither party would do anything in the first five years. So we had a lock-in period to mm. all intents and purposes but that we had a second five-year period where we would execute some form of capital event, 
whether that capital event, as it transpired, would be for the VC to buy the outstanding interest in the business and actually own the whole business, or whether that was something where we would take the business to market to collectively, or whether that was actually you know, what we've referred to as the kind of founding directors, myself and Martin, would effectively buy the business off the VC in, in a crude sort of sense. And we had a contract structure that we negotiated at the outset that allowed for all of those sorts of things. And I have to actually commend Tribal in that because uh, you know, they brought a lot of that thinking to the table to us in backing our business case you know, um, or backing our business plan for that, that, that matter. It wasn't a sort of normal exit. We didn't have to go and trawl the market, as it were. And we agreed up front you know, the, the formula by which we would value the business. You know, so I, I often say to people that we spent more time in negotiation with Tribal as a VC talking about how we were going to get out and exit at the end than we did about what the ingoing kind of uh, terms were. So it, it, it's, it, it's not unique. Other people have done it, but it was a slightly different way of doing it. So it was slightly unusual in that respect. It's a model I've never heard of before. So I, I really want to dig into it because there's something about, again, when I speak to a lot, a lot of the questions I'd like to ask on this are really just channeling people I've spoken to, you know, like you say, yeah. friends at Starbucks or people who've messaged me on LinkedIn. And there is a perception that to start a consulting firm, you need a lot of cash behind you. You need, you need a whole number of things that basically stop people doing it. And I think that model obviously potentially opens that world. But before going on to that, I guess the... The question that just sticks in my mind is what did Tribal see in the two of you to make them comfortable and, and want to set up this structure and do this, yep. this deal with you? So I think, uh, actually, should ask them, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, yes. It's, uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I can give you the names and addresses. Um, <laughs> what did they see in us? They saw two, we weren't X at the time, but two effectively KPMG, KPMG Atos partners, Martin was the business unit managing partner for the public sector practice. I was one of the kind of lead partners leading and running one of the big account growth areas in terms of national security. I'd like to think that they were backing us basically as individuals, you know, and they bought, that sounds like we sold it to them. I'm not sure we did, but they bought into the kind of philosophy of, of there being a, a time and a place in the market that was, you know, uh, characterized by a bit of turmoil on the supply side. And there was an opportunity to do something different. And, you know, thankfully for us, they backed us to do it. Well, uh, and to what you said about actually the exit being a, an unusual but a less exciting story, not exciting, sorry, that's the wrong word, less. Well, it's less fraught for us. Uh, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> less fraught in that it was already a fixed outcome. I guess maybe the, the better question is, is at the beginning, how did you two, uh, you being you and Martin and Tribal, come together such that, as you say, it sounds like you were looking to start a business, they were looking for a venture to back, but how how did you and how does one now go about even creating that sort of conversation? Yeah, I mean, so for us, Martin and I had probably been planning for three or four months and had started a process of looking for funding, recognising, uh, the expression I've used in the past is that the the kind of resources of Ghana Wilson were not going to fund the business we wanted to grow and we knew that we needed funding to help us grow it. So we'd started to look, yeah, we'd done the kind of traditional sort of things about conversations with banks and conversations with people that might factor invoices and stuff like that. But none of that really fitted, you know, with what we wanted to do or was probably of the scale that we wanted to do it at. And sorry, just for, because I'm not 100% invoice factoring is just forwarding invoices, is that, or forward advances on invoices? Yeah, so so effectively almost selling your invoice to a third party who then collects the cash from the 
from the end client and you know but it means from a cash flow point of view that you can guarantee cash flow almost at the point of raising your invoice you pay a small margin for the privilege of doing so uh, i got you but i'm sorry that it was just a side piece because i i always i kick myself and, and i have been pulled up on it if things are said that i don't understand and others sure. don't understand. so yeah, yeah, no, no, but no. keep keep going so we were starting to look at you know other sources and yeah, the honest answer is the relationship with Tribal was sort of serendipity. We were aware of them. We were aware that they had a sort of what I would call a buy or build strategy at the time and had invested in one or two other businesses on a similar mode, a similar model to that that they eventually invested in us. And we were therefore interested in a conversation with them if we could you know, achieve such a thing. At a point in time where, um, and I'm not sure the tribal even know this to this day, that they reached out to us and it was like, okay. So consequently, one then thinks, well, actually, if they're reaching out to us uh, and they, directly they were reaching out to Martin, if they were reaching out to Martin for a conversation with him, then that kind of puts a little bit more kind of, um, I don't know, power in our kind of side of the negotiation so i don't think we ever told them that we were interested in a conversation with them we were and when the opportunity came around we jumped at it oh so just just so i'm clear that it wasn't that people in the market knew you were looking it was just they knew who martin was in terms of his his role and his experience absolutely and, yeah ah. and for people looking as a potential model now are there still firms out there who and I know this sounds terribly naive, but are there still firms like Tribal and others who who follow this model? Who actually, if you bring them a a consulting proposition, because you know now if you say VC, everyone thinks tech, but is there yeah. actually still that that demand for those sort of consulting business structures, which give you, I guess, that exit certainty, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the honest answer is I've never come across an equivalent structure elsewhere. You know, are there businesses out there that are interested in sort of buy and build strategies? Yes, of course there are. You know, are there businesses out there that would therefore be prepared to back a startup in that and you know therefore you know seek to invest in a build? I believe there are. You know, is the market different? Is the market more difficult than perhaps it was in the mid-2000s? Yeah, I think it probably is. You know, what would the very crudely, what would the cost of that be now in terms of the nature of that deal? But but I you know, the very honest answer is I have not come across an equivalent deal structure sort of since really. And maybe then the, the better question, and we'll, we'll come on a bit later to more around actually your advice for the, the firms you do yeah. work with, because I'm sure there's there's a lot of learnings for others there. But actually, if someone was looking to start a consulting business, like you say, maybe the, the VC option isn't isn't there, what are those key things that you would say put in place to, and it, and it might be just some of the, you know, a recap of some of the things you've already spoken about, but what are those key things that you would recommend putting in place to start off on the best footing? Sure. We come back to some of the things I've said earlier in terms of you know clarity of business plan and purpose, routes to market, sufficient funding, you know, clear operating model, and actually the systems to support that operating model from as early as you possibly can. They're the things I we did. We did instinctively in some instances. I think we did in some other instances because we'd been pretty well schooled in KPMG and we could kind of see the value of some of the things that we could borrow with pride as it were but uh, you know, it's 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 those sorts of things that I kind of focus on and with it and I suppose we've sort of touched on it and I've touched on it but but then the kind of reasonably rigorous kind of performance management and I don't mean at a personal level and yeah you know, I mean at a corporate level 
yeah, having the MI, having the MI in a timely way, using it, driving your decisions off it, you know, and not convincing yourself that you know all will be well in the end. You know, uh, actually, I mean, I always say that when the when the business was going really well, and when the business was more difficult, we looked at our MI every week. When the business was somewhere between, we might have looked at it every fortnight or occasionally every month. But actually, when we were high growth, really high growth, it was every week. And actually, when life was tough, it was every week. And that was backward looking and forward looking. You know, and we just, we did, we did it. I'm conscious, like you say, we, we, we've touched on quite a bit of the, the startup side. And actually, if I'm right, when you merged with Tribal or were, were bought out, yeah, yeah. you then actually took a managing director role in, in the Tribal business. I did. And so suddenly you went from, as you say, just over 70 with a veil to, I think it was, was it around 350, just over? A bit more, more but, uh, 450, something like that, yeah. And I'd be fascinated how different or, or, or not actually that was in terms of team management and leadership. And actually sure. what, what were some of those, if it was different, those, those skills that you found yourself really having to, to increase and focus on to, to make that jump from you know, 70 to, my math isn't great, but sort of five-fold increase. Yeah, yeah. So the start of that journey was that that the the other n hundred people that you know, suddenly became part of what we ended up calling government and society as a business unit in tribal, and as I said, I sat at MD on top of that. When we set out, actually, there was no structure. The structure was a holding company structure with subsidiary companies. The companies were as they had been acquired, as my company was as it had been acquired. So we had. You know, parallel systems, multiple directors, not quite overlapping services, but a bit of overlapping in competing services, largely deployed in slightly different markets. So, you know, what did I kind of acquire, I suppose, as it was in terms of the other businesses? I require, acquired another business that was very focused on the central government. I acquired a local government business. I required a housing business. I acquired a business that was focused on sort of spatial planning, um, town and country planning type aspects. I acquired a business that was focused on actually the international aid world and worked extensively with the World Bank and DFID and, and one or two other sorts of organizations. So quite market different, but actually all doing the same sorts of things. And I mean, this was very late 2009, early 2010. We were looking down the barrels of a 2010 general election and we were at that time you know in a latter days of what's now the brown government looking at the potential of having a, a kind of conservative government that year everything we were hearing from the conservative party at that point in time about you know their plans for you know government as they saw it meant life was going to be pretty tough for people operating in the public sector you know the kind of austerity phrase was already out there so I very quickly, having kind of um, stepped into the managing director role, said to the board that I felt we needed to restructure the, the organisation and quite significantly restructure it from its six or seven acquired holding companies into one organisation that we could leverage resources better, we could insulate ourselves better from what might be coming down the path. The board backed me and that's what we did. So we, we took six or seven completely separate companies and we created one operating company out of them with eight business units operating in N markets with Y directors and all the rest of it. So coming back to your question specifically, what was the big challenge first off? 
people. You know? So we set out very quickly a kind of strategic plan and a target operating model to support that strategic plan. And we then had a quite significant kind of people transformation, people change project to move everybody from those legacy, as I would describe them, companies into that kind of consolidated operating business. And we did it in three months, four months. Which is incredibly, incredibly fast for that sort of it was. program. Yeah, it was. And again, it comes back to people, you know, some great leadership, um, some great leadership at a program level to, to kind of do that. Led very heavily on what, what would by that stage become one of my new colleagues who took that forward. Um, some leadership in terms of, you know, the BAU business. I lent very heavily on a chief operating officer that we'd appointed that ran the BAU business for us. But we moved everybody. We changed all the teams. We built a new set of tools to manage the business by. We took the best of breed of the tools that the operating companies had got. We were in a pre-integrated world, but we'd got one project finance solution. We had one CRM solution. We had one resource management solution you know, implemented within that time frame as well. It was challenging, possibly slightly more challenging for my colleagues than me, if I'm honest. And maybe it's an interesting area to explore. You mentioned around people and, and I guess, you know, people and culture, they might they go hand in hand, I guess. They might you might be referring to them one in the same. Is almost what were those what were those challenges that your you or your colleagues had to deal with and and I guess it's a similar question, but I think there'll be a, more examples for this one of those challenges in tribal. You, you know, you said that things at Avail went well throughout. What are some of those challenges that you had to deal with in that transition? And what was the one that or one or two that stick with you? So, so on the people side, of it, I think there are two, two things, but on the people side of it, I think there, there were a couple of dimensions to that. So one of which was sort of a degree of sort of brand loyalty to the company mm. that they had come into Tribal through that had been acquired by Tribal. That was true of my own company as well. You know, you've got that kind of aspect to it. And you'd also got with that brand loyalty, clearly loyalty to the management teams of those businesses in their legacy forms. People were naturally comfortable with that. Many of those directors then took roles in the new organization, but actually many didn't, and a number therefore departed. And actually, for a lot of people, even though their kind of legacy directors were a kind of around in this new kind of operating model, they weren't necessarily working for them. So we had to overcome all of that quite quickly. For me, that was a lot about dialogue, dialogue from me, dialogue from the new managers, having a clarity of purpose and setting out a kind of charter almost in terms of what we were going to do. So that that was challenging. But we did all of that and got that kind of, you know, we, we, we were operating in the new model within three months, three to four months. It took a couple of months to settle it down, and we just settled it down and you know, got over teething problems, for the want of a better term. It took a couple of monthly cycles to do that, and we hit the general election. And that was the second challenge, was it? That was definitely <laughs> the second challenge. So, uh, so that came in two forms. That came in the form of actually the, the funnel and pipeline for the business dried up almost overnight. You know, we lost, I think it's almost public record, but we lost something like 40% of our market opportunity in four to five months. Now, there were some markets that were a bit slower in terms of their reaction to you know, the austerity regime and the Francis Maud approach to kind of consultancies and, and you know, tech suppliers to, to government. You know, so our business in, say, social housing was a bit more insulated. Our business in actually international aid was a bit more insulated. Our businesses in central government were 
you know, not quite decimated, that's unfair, but they were hit hard. So we had we had very few contracts that were terminated. We had a few under the austerity banner. We can no longer employ consultants, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what we really had was a sort of dry up of, of new opportunity. So the second challenge was, well, we've just put this new business model together. We've just integrated it. It did give us, I strongly believe, it gave us a sort of degree of insulation from what was happening. But then we had to right-size it. Um, we had to right-size it for the market opportunity, which we did over the sort of summer of 2010, which was you know, challenging for everybody. But we got the business back into a kind of operating equilibrium by the autumn, you know, maybe by Christmas, maybe it was all that sort of time frame. But that, that was quite a significant challenge. We were 400 and something people at the beginning of it and we were 300 and something people at the end of it. And we, we had to right-size the business to the, to the available opportunity. Uh, and that was, you know, that was challenging. It, it strikes me, you, you went through the, the five years at Avail, and, and again, this is, is a caricature, but in, in broadly a, a, st- a sort of straight line and a straight line up. And, and you know, what you've just explained is within 12, 18 months, you sort of, you've had to smash together a bunch of businesses, then you've yep. had to right-size them, and, yep. and then obviously there's a period coming out. And actually, you said how your, your colleagues maybe took a bit more of the brunt of the restructure, but for yourself as that managing director, how did you deal with that? What Was there anything, you know, looking back, be it something you did, you know, a practice you turned to, a, a books, anything like that, that really you would attribute to helping you see through that process? So, so I think... Um... No, I didn't turn to, you know, yoga or books or whatever it was, you know. Um, <laughs> actually, I did have a small cohort of people very close to me that worked with me to manage that process. And, you know, I think you, in those situations, you kind of draw strength from each other. And, you know, m- my role in all of that was clarity of why we're doing it, clarity of what we need to do. And actually a little bit of we have no option, you know, um, because actually whenever you're faced with something like a right size, the, the natural reaction of some colleagues is that uh, it'll all be all right tomorrow and we just need to hold on and next month will be better than... And actually you just have to say, no, it's not, you know. Uh, and I think the challenge in all of that is um, what I've said before is is finding the bottom and knowing when you've hit the bottom. Because when you know you've hit the bottom, you know you can build from it again. When you're kind of what almost feels like in free fall you don't know where the bottom is, then that's the difficult thing. And that from a kind of my leadership role in that situation was to remain you know, calm, to have some kind of faith in the processes that we'd put in place in terms of the way we were dealing with them, to make sure we were dealing with people fairly and equitably in that process. You know, uh, and I think I believe we did. You know, we did part company with a large number of people, 20 to 25% of the consulting population mm-hmm. over a very short period of time. And to the degree one can, but to kind of, you know, coach the leaders of the business to listen to what their challenges are, to work with a small cohort of people. There were, although we had a management team of, oh, I don't know what what was our management team, probably overall management team of, say, 20 as a senior leadership Mm. team. There was a cohort of four or five of us that sat at the middle of that, as crude as it sounds, driving that process. Uh, I just want to pick up on because the point you made around knowing where the bottom is. Because I think if I look at where we are in the economic cycle, we've yeah, had, yeah. you know, since since then, we've had loads of growth. And actually, I mean, we we are recording this on the eve of of the next general Indeed election, and and obviously we were we were meeting with another firm earlier, and and they mentioned how you know I, I didn't realise this, but we've had three general elections in that time, and actually Indeed. we're on the eve of a general election, which 
obviously in the public sector, as you were highlighting, can have major ramifications. We're due a recession. And yeah, yeah. You know, the cycle just says there's one that should have come probably well, two or three years ago. How did you know or, or what was it that, that gave you those indicators? What were those indicators that said, actually, I think we're, I think we're at the bottom and, and we can, like you say, we're coming out of free fall? Because I'm sure that we're going to be entering a phase where businesses are sadly going to have to be yeah, yeah. doing similar. Yeah. And the honest answer is we got it wrong once. Yeah, so we thought we'd hit the bottom and actually we hadn't. And that's tough. How did we know that we'd hit the bottom? Uh, a little bit of you know, stability, I suppose. You start to see that actually the volume of new opportunity, you know, simple stuff, but you need those lead indicators. You know, the new volume of new inquiries and opportunities in the pipeline you know, was starting to go up. Not the total number was going up, but actually, more importantly, your kind of acquisition rate month on month was going up. So, you know, I just use some random numbers, but we had 50 new opportunities two months ago. We had 70 last month and we got 100 this month. Okay, we may not be turning those opportunities into work yet, but at least there's now a greater volume of opportunity. You know, we started to get to a point where we were stable as a trading organization. You know, we weren't loss making anymore. You know, so you sort of say, okay, that feels better. Uh, it's not one thing that tells you that you've hit the bottom. You know, again, I kind of come back to, Maybe it's a sort of simplistic approach, but managing organizations of, of the nature of a consulting or professional services business is, is a, in my opinion, it's a balance of a little bit of intuition, but actually, you know, being true to the data of the, of the metrics of the business and, you know, having the rigor to look at those and to make decisions based on them. It, it took us, it did take us, I mean, that general election was in May and it probably took us till September or October to find the bottom. I do want to touch on the NHS because I'm fascinated both of what it's like to work in because I don't know, but also that how you found that transition because I imagine it's quite a jump. But I, just because we're on on the track, you advise a number of consultancy firms yeah, yeah. Um, yourself, and almost to the point you were just saying, I'd I'd love to know what is it that what are those key pieces of advice that you're giving them? As you know, you 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 mentioned earlier, you work before this um, podcast, you work with scale up businesses, so yeah. consultancies of a certain size. What is what are those key challenges they have, and those key pieces of advice that you find yourself giving to all all of the firms of which you advise? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I work with three businesses as a either well, I chair one, and I'm a strategic advisor to two others. Um, you know, one of which we're sitting in their offices at the moment. Uh, so I think there's sort of some advice that I kind of provide those guys you know, or work with those teams uh, more broadly. So um, one of which is about clarity of strategy and purpose. You know, what are we here to do? How are we doing it? How do we measure what we're doing? And one of which is about kind of infrastructure in the business. You know, so how do we know what we're doing? You know, uh, have we got the tools to manage the business? Also encouraging them to get the balance right between kind of working on and working in the business because I think there's a temptation. You know, I see it in the business I'm involved in to you know, work in the business a lot and, and in my opinion, neglect the working on of the business so i encourage people to do that actually encourage people to have uh, a bit of a kind of performance metronome we need to look at the performance of the business you know on a monthly basis and we just need to be rigorous about it we need to look at what we've done you know what we what we think we can do and you know that needs to bring together you know a set of financial results some forecasting based around sold work and some you know probable possible forecasting around what the business might do and you know, we need to go through it every month and we need to go through it by account by opportunity by person 
we're not that big of businesses. You know, the scale-up businesses are, you know, the world business I work with are kind of, I don't know, two to five million in turnover. They're in that kind of range. You can do those things. And, but it's the discipline of doing them that I kind of also encourage and instill. Again, like your question about tribal and why do they invest in Robert Martin, you know, you should probably ask the guys that I'm working with, you know, what, wh why, you know, that they want to work with me in that sense. But, but I think it is about providing some of the benefit of the experience I've had, but actually encouraging them in terms of what, what I might sort of euphemistically refer to as kind of how do they kind of professionalize, industrialize their business for the next stage of growth? You know, actually, how do they get, get back to that avail lesson? How do they how do they put the next operating model in place, not the current operating model? What does that next operating model need to look like? What do you need to support that operating model to kind of make it work? And you know, so it's not rocket science. It's one of those, and maybe it's the it's hard. Is it hard but not difficult or difficult but not hard? I can never get those two the right way oh, around. Yeah, yeah. But um, just uh, you know, picking up on. Some, one of the points you just mentioned, because it's it's something you hear a lot of people say that the working on, not working in. But actually, for some people, they just simply they they won't know the difference. But also, it's then how do you carve out that working on time? So you know, you mentioned earlier in in the conversation that you and Martin were quite strict. We do not do any more than forty percent. But actually, how particularly at the range that that you you know you advise, and, and this it doesn't have to be three. You advise it could be any any yeah, yeah. is almost. At that size, it's still going to be a, a firm such that the number of people mean you're going to need to sell some of you. So yes. how do you advise people to to make that time to give well, or make the capacity to give them time to work on, not in the business? Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's all sorts of things in that. So back to the points about quality of the people that you recruit and employ, you know, and that creates headroom for you because actually if you can devolve responsibility to those sorts of people. It's also about taking them crudely the right roles on projects you know actually you know if you're going to work on not in when you are working in you know and it is a couple of days a week you know broadly you need to be sponsoring those projects working as some sort of you know use the euphemistic language of an engagement director or something yeah actually what you don't want to be doing is selling yourselves you know writing the report doing this doing whatever it happens to be you know there's an appropriateness of the sort of level of engagement that you have that enables you to to do that you know yes the first two or three engagements that avail did back in 2004 were delivered by martin and rob but actually as soon as we were able to start to recruit people that gave us the bandwidth that meant that we could direct those projects but not deliver them we did you can then spread yourself much further because you're directing two three four projects not delivering one so therefore you can fuel the growth of the business in terms of your sort of span of control and again you know we we kind of we stuck to it i do come back to that that you know we recruited well early with people that we could devolve responsibility to if i take all of that together the the, the interesting thing that struck me is it's the strategic focus on working on not in i think some people can come at it more as a time management issue no 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 and it's what you do and I think that's that that you know, that that at the heart, and it's it's really powerful. And again, for me, I'm, I'm living this right now. Is making that structural change such that you don't need to carve out the time. The time is there, and then yeah. you're you're choosing to fill it with, as you say, the the working on, not not working in. You mentioned around. I should ask the firms that pick you, but yeah. I'm interested. We've touched on the sort of big things. Is 
what are the are there any little things that almost catch you by surprise in terms of if you look at the firms you advise or or others you know the sort of the questions you didn't think you'd get asked but you find yourself being asked and answering more often than than you'd expect oh that's a good one um so where do I kind of get drawn in a bit deeper? I occasionally get drawn a bit deeper on some particular client issue, um, particularly where there may be a market relevance point, but not often, if I'm honest. I sometimes get drawn in a bit deeper in terms of uh, personal performance management, not just kind of company or corporate performance management and get involved in some of that. Uh, have there been kind of small things? I'm not sure. You know, mo most, most people are pretty good with the management of my time, if that makes sense, you know. Uh, so, so, no, I, 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 you know, I think everything I do, I, I you know, with those firms, I, you know, I really enjoy. You know, they, again, I come back to the people you want to work with, people you like, you want to work with people that you want to work with, and that's really important. And, and therefore, yes, maybe sometimes you do you know, lend a hand, but but actually, you know, broadly, you know, my engagement with those businesses is on a strategic board advisor or non-exec director basis, and. You know, we we might I carve my time out appropriately, and and we try and stay focused on the things that are driving the business forward or will drive the business forward. I'll come on to because I think it it fits nicely into some of your um, your other ventures, particularly Garwood Solutions, and, yeah. and how that helps people. I think I do want to. I was going to go there, but I I know I'll leave. I'll lose the NHS if I don't. So I just you know you, you mentioned around your if you weren't sure your wife your wife convinced you, and actually how different was it going. I guess both client side and and for those who haven't worked in the public sector, I've never worked in the public sector, going into a public sector organization like the NHS, like you say, through such a, a time of change and, and how how much of a a difference or a culture shock or just a, a whole different operating model was that compared to your consulting career? Yeah, no, incredibly different. Although I think yeah, having spent... 80% of my consulting career to that point working with the public sector, I, you know, I got a I got a reasonable idea, I think it'd be fair to say. I'd never really worked in health though to that point. And you know, my credibility going in was actually much more about the leadership of a I mean, what I ended up doing through the kind of Lansley reform era and for myself and people that don't know, you know, the Lansley reform refers to Andrew Lansley, who was the then Secretary of State for Health, who brought forward a proposition which got implemented across NHS UK, but primarily NHS England, which saw the abolition of primary care trusts and the abolition of strategic health authorities and the creation of a series of successor bodies, broadly known as, as CCGs, clinical commissioning groups, and also what were also then referred to as commissioning support units. And I initially joined Norfolk and then subsequently Surrey and Sussex. And in Norfolk, it was about, uh, you know, joining initially as a member of the PCT board, but with executive director responsibility for the broad implementation of the Lansley reform, and in particular, the kind of creation of the successor bodies, and within that, in particular, the creation of the, of the commissioning support unit. The commissioning support unit was going to be, was, is, you know, 60% of the kind of uh, employees of the PCT were going to end up in the commissioning support unit. It was by far and away the largest of the sort of successor bodies. Mm. It was to be a not-for-profit trading organisation to trade with the other new bodies that were being set up. So here we were all as part of the PCT. We were splitting the PCT into a CSU and in Norfolk, I think it was five or six CCGs. We were also sending people off 
to NHS property services and a whole range of other, I think it was 17 organisations that people went to as a result of the abolition of the PCT, of which CSU was by far and away the largest, but it was then this kind of not-for-profit training organisation with all of those other bodies, but primarily with the CCGs of Norfolk, Norfolk and Waverley. So, you know, my role in all of that was the creation of the new organisation, the transition of people into it, and then setting out again back to an operating model to operate a kind of not-for-profit training organisation. So again, how did we set out our services? How did we price our services? Because they were traded, they were mm. formally traded. How did we then monitor and manage them? You know, and actually, but importantly, through all of that, how did we take what were about six or seven hundred people in the PCT and transition them to those seventeen other bodies, but keeping three, four hundred of them in the, the CSU? You know, but in that, moving them from being, you know, public servants in the classic sense of the word, to now in the CSU, recognising they had clients that were actually yesterday their colleague that sat in the next desk, but they were now their clients. So how do we, sorry, that sounds a bit crude, but how do we also educate people in terms of what that meant? So I came in to, yes, a public sector body, yes, a set of PCT structures in terms of what we had to do, and, and some of that was alien to me in terms of what the requirements were. But the main job for me was how did we take the lion's share of that organisation and in a 12-month period transition it to this not-for-profit training organisation selling its services to the CCGs of the, of the, of the locality. Uh, it, was, it was fascinating. Uh, it was enormously... I thoroughly enjoyed it. I met some fabulous people, you know, fabulously talented, fabulously dedicated, and really you know, it was a journey, you know, for everybody, me included. It's just struck me, and I think about the three examples we've just talked about, Avail, Tribal, um, and, and now the NHS. And actually, in each one of them, you seem to, you seem to be phenomenally good at developing an operating model and, and almost more importantly, executing an operating mm. model, which if I think about you know, when I was in consulting, I've seen plenty of operating models that have had three, four months put on them, a great, you know, a great PowerPoint deck, and then it goes on a shelf. Or I've also seen operating models where they start implementing and, and two, three, four years later, you know, the next consultancy goes in. because What is it that, and it, again, if this is just things we've touched on, we, you know, we'd move on, we'll move on. But what is it that lets you or, or what is it for you that enabled you to execute those operating model changes and something that, as I say, is, is usually notoriously difficult yeah. from a consulting sense you know, to do it in successive businesses successfully and completed end to end. So it's not writing a great big thick PowerPoint deck <laughs> you know, in the first instance. I mean, I think you know, the operating model that we wrote for Tribal um, back in 2010 was maybe 15, 20 pages. You know, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a thick read, as it were. So how, how does one go about it? You know, so I typically start from two dimensions. I start from the dimension of, you know, the clients and the demand from the clients. And I then start from a dimension which is about our capabilities and actually probably spend quite a chunk of time looking at the capabilities of the organisation, both the capabilities that the organisation has and the capabilities that the organisation may be being demanded of by the market. I don't mean personal capabilities i mean corporate capabilities you know what are the things that we can legitimately say that we can do and let's be honest with ourselves about 
how good are we at doing them? And actually, if the answer is not excellent, what do we need to do to make them excellent? Whether that's, you know, we need to invest in them in terms of IP or we need to invest in them in terms of people or whatever it is. And, you know, bring that together with a, a kind of view of a, a kind of operating framework, mm. you know, high level view about what a kind of macro future structure is going to look like that means that we can leverage those capabilities for those market opportunities, all of those sorts of things. With that, then start to look at what is a sort of, I think about an operating model. So so, so if that's the structural element, the kind of market demand, business capabilities, organizational structural element, the other element that I would then think about is, so what's our kind of, what's our business cadence? You know, what are we going to do weekly, monthly, quarterly is the kind of language I would adopt. You know, so every week we'll do this, every month we'll do this, every quarter we'll do this. You know, what are those things? And then making sure that the processes that support those, because they are typically in a business services firm or whatever, that they are a professional services firm, their business performance cadence. So you know, for people that are listening to this that have worked with me will know about MORs and things like that, monthly operating reviews, you know. So how do you then put an accountability model in that drives that weekly, monthly, quarterly operating cadence of performance measurement and accountability for it? And that, that's the bit that often takes a month or two, once you've done it, to start settling and people get used to the kind of the model. Uh, again, it's not unique. Lots of people do it. But it's so, so I kind of start from the outside looking in, then assess what we've got inside, then think about a, a kind of high-level organisational framework and then think about what are the kind of weekly, monthly, quarterly processes and what information requirements we have to make those weekly, monthly processes really work. And then actually the hard work is then doing it. Well, and that was going to be, the, so the, the picture you paint obviously has a clear structure and, and like you say, there's, there's elements you're putting in. Actually, the... The PowerPoint is one problem, but the doing it is another. And actually, how do you or how have you gone about doing that, obviously successfully, but in such a way that guarantees that success or ensures that you can embed that operating model? No guarantees in this. Fair enough. Um, uh, but, but I think, <laughs> so you've got two parts to that, haven't you? The execute part, you've got a kind of program transition phase to get you there. So you have your slim down in my version PowerPoint deck, and, and then you have a, a transition plan. In my opinion, that needs to be swift. You know, as I said, in the tribal instance, it was about three months. Actually, in the NHS, it wasn't for a whole series of other reasons. I mean, broadly, that was probably six to nine months, if I'm honest. But that was driven by, to a certain extent, external factors as well as internal factors. We were part of a national program. We weren't doing this on our own, as it were. But execute that transition as quickly as possible. And you know, what's the expression about, you know, don't let perfect get in the way of good. Mm. You know, actually, you know, execute as well as you can on the key things, but let's not perfect something before we kind of start to live it. Let's refine it by living it. But then the kind of the the, the kind of cadence of of living it on that weekly, monthly, quarterly basis and sticking to it. And, you know, for me, it meant, I don't know, I can't remember now, eight, ten operating reviews every month everyone was an hour or two there was a pack for everyone you know we sat down across the table and we went through the pack and we talked about the operating performance and what we were going to do to adjust it for the next month whatever that happened to be 
and just doing it month in, month out, month in, month out. Um, and then reflecting the kind of changes on a quarterly basis or whatever as an overlay to it. And there's an interesting, or a couple of key things in there for me. I mean, firstly, the the good's not perfect, which I think we all consultants, we always get accused of and you know, is, can be the killer for most, yeah, yeah. most initiatives. And then I, I guess the... The other element of, of those monthly reviews, it sounds like, was that continuous improvement of yes. how do we keep building and tweaking? and Yes, and both in terms of the processes that we put in place. So mm. how do we improve those? How do we improve the quality of the information pack? How do we make sure we've got you know, the best information we can to take those decisions off? You know, what's mm. missing, as it were? But equally, at the same time, you know, using that to drive what you would hope would be continuous improvement in what the business was doing in the marketplace. Now, in the face of a general election in 2010, that was tough. Um, <laughs> but, but actually, in a wider sense, that's what we were doing. And I think that brings us quite nicely, actually, to, to what you're doing now, because sure. obviously we, we've already talked about the, the advisory part of your, your portfolio, but the, the other side is the, the business you've launched, Garwood Solutions. Indeed. Save me doing a terrible job of introducing it. It'd be good for to get an overview of actually how you're bringing the experience almost you've just spoken about into it and what is it, what Garwood Solutions, why you launched it and what it's set up to do? Yeah, so, so we launched Garwood Solutions a little less than two years ago. Um, myself and another founding director, Graham Underwood. We actually uh, hadn't known each other that long, which is quite interesting and quite unusual for us. And our introduction was through uh, colleagues and acquaintances at Kimball. Um, mm -hmm. So... People are aware of Kimball as a, mm. a leading PSA. I'd implemented Kimball three times in my history uh, to that point. Graham had implemented it once, but actually was the largest implementation at that point that there'd been of Kimball. Uh, we described ourselves as a sort of frequent flyer and the, and the largest kind of client that, that Kimball had. Actually, Kimball introduced us to each other. Okay. And introduced each other with, a, with an objective, which is, you know, their product works better when there is a operating framework and a performance framework within the organizations that is you know, not necessarily attuned to it, aligned to it, but, but actually, first off, there is one kind of thing. So really, the, the initial conversation between Graham and myself and, and Kimball was, could we set up a business? Would we be interested in setting up a business? And what would that look like to work with Kimball, to work with Kimball's clients on operating models and performance frameworks and things like that? that would sit neatly in a sort of hand-in-glove kind of way with actually implementing a PSA, which was the sort of surfacing of the information, but there's there's surfacing it and there's doing something with it. And what we've found is that, so we've worked with a range of Kimball clients, but we've also worked with a range of our own clients that we've subsequently developed, you know, in parallel uh, in the way the business now operates. The heart of it is around sort of performance management of professional services firms. We seem to be working ironically, at kind of almost the bookends of the market. So we seem to work very well with scale-up businesses, smaller businesses that are perhaps, with no disrespects, but kind of perhaps outgrowing some of the kind of operational business demands almost of a, of a founder. Um, and we've done quite a lot of work at that. End. And then we're working with quite a few businesses that aren't large, very large businesses that aren't necessarily first and foremost, a professional services firm, but for whatever reason have a, in some instances, very significant professional services arm that may have been through acquisition, that 
may have come about through other reasons. But they're then trying to kind of wrap their arms around something that uh, you know perhaps is a, is a bit alien to them in terms of what the core business is about. So where you've got a kind of what people would refer to an embedded service organization. So we seem to be working with quite a number of those. And we, as I said, we, we formed the business a, a kind of a little less than two years ago, just Graham and myself. Uh, we subsequently brought on two other directors to the business and a, a kind of range of associates. And, and we're not running a, a, what I would think of as a, what I would tell people to do in terms of running a kind of leverage model. Uh, actually, you know, we're all of a similar ilk to, to myself. You know, Graham was chief operating officer of a large European tech services company, several thousand staff. Our other kind of colleagues are former partners in Accenture, uh, chief operating officer of a UK financial services software company, thousand plus staff. You know, colleagues have run big managed service organisations. You know, we've all got kind of not necessarily chief exec, but we've all got kind of probably more broadly chief operating officer kind of experience, and, and that's what uh, that's what we're kind of taking to the market alongside in some instances alongside Kimball and in other instances not because it is just a unique model it, I'm intrigued in almost how do you see that in terms of the market is that a model that client is resonating with clients and you think it's going to scale a bit like where you were going way back when you started Avail is this do you see this potentially as the the new modeling consulting or is it more the just the model that was worked for you in the the situation think, you've got I think it's the model that's working for the sort of services we're taking to the market Avail was a first principles problem-solving consultancy mm. at its heart. It was very, very bright people mm. solving problems for clients in, to an extent, in, a, in a relatively traditional way, but it was a first principles problem-solving consultancy. That's not what Garwood is. You know, Garwood is uh, you know, a group of people that have been there, done it, got the T-shirts and the scars, uh, and are now in a, you know, objective way trying to bring some of that experience to other organizations that are you know experiencing pain at similar points in their kind of growth and inflection um, and it's a, it's a completely different operating model actually because of the nature of the business and you know the, the, the people that we are uh, most people in the business are working part-time that's their choice or they're like me they're balancing a, a non-exec portfolio with some consulting advisory work it's a completely different operating model uh, in that respect. So it's not, never say never, but it's not a high-scale business in yeah. the way that Avail was because it's not a leverage model. You know, we're, we're seeking to do something different. So we are, you know, break all of my rules, we are working <laughs> more in the business than we're working on it to that extent. Not everybody and not all of the time, but but there is a little bit of that. And, and thinking almost the, from the, the client side, and this could be um, as Garwood or like you say, as your from the portfolio side as a non-exec of yeah. and it's probably something I should have should have asked earlier, but I want to I want to repent now is for anyone listening to this who is in that scale-up stage, almost when should someone be thinking of getting someone like yourself involved and almost what needs to be true for them to get that value from someone like you? Yeah, no, sure. So so what what I and I'm going to be immensely generalistic here, and, and, and apologies to people if I offend them. But, but the vast majority of people that start up professional services firms are experts, for want of a better term, and interested in the professional service that they are providing. The running of the business is the something that they have to do 
to make it successful. Some make the transition fantastically well, and others really, their heart is in the professional service that they're providing into the market. And I think you know, where we play well is then working with those people to help them to put the kind of structures, whether it's, you know, I use the overladen in this conversation, but the operating model or the systems or whatever, in place to enable that business to grow. Sometimes actually helping them to put the management team in place that, that helps that organization to grow and even to the, you know, actually the founder becomes the, I don't know, the executive chairman and someone else comes in and runs the business on a day-to-day basis, you know. Um, but it's finding those inflection points and it's finding those points at which you know, people are comfortable. You know, and as I said, you know, I, I have little or no evidence for this, but my intuition is that most organisations hit similar inflection points. You know, so in a professional service business, it is about 20, it is about 40, it is about 100. Once you're to 100, it's, my experience says it's probably about 300 or something like that. Whether they're universally true, I don't know. I'm sure other people would contradict <laughs> me. But but that that seems to be the case. And therefore, you know, uh, yes, it is working with those people in those scale-up situations that are experts passionate about what they're doing in the market and giving them the kind of bandwidth, the the, the kind of shortcut in some instances to, to the kind of perhaps the business management dimensions which they are, without wishing to be disparaging, less interested in but are absolutely necessary if this business is going to grow. I'm going to stop myself because we could keep talking. And I know you, you kindly volunteered your evening for as long as, as, long as we, we wanted this conversation to go on, but it's been dark now for, for most of the afternoon, <laughs> but also now well into the evening. It so I, indeed. I have two last, very last questions, yes, and course. then I think we'll, we'll close for the evening and uh, yeah, lock up our, our numeratus's office that they've kindly lent us for indeed. today. And so these are questions that I ask all of my guests. Yeah. Um, and I know you've listened to a few episodes. So you, I have. You probably know what's coming. So I, and I really enjoy getting the, the differences, the similarities, and just you know, hearing different people's spins on these. So the, the first one is, is books. And yeah, so yeah. not as much as I should have this year, but I'm trying to make amends of, I'm a huge reader. I love reading books, probably too many business books, not enough Harry Potter. But um, I'd love to know what is it for you over the journey we've spoken about for the last, gosh, hour and a half now. Yeah. It goes quickly, doesn't it? It does indeed. Um, what is the book or books that have had the biggest impact for you on, on, throughout that time and on that journey? So, so I, I'm an avid reader of, of um, well, I consume the press every day. Okay. And, you know, alongside that, you know, um, things like The Economist and stuff like that. So, so, I, so I'm not actually a big sort of, business textbook reader you know mm. I, I think a lot of my kind of learning comes from other sources and and mm. those sorts of periodicals are, are probably a bit more to it i think in terms of what sticks in my mind and what do i use as a tool that i kind of read about i go back a very long way and you know anybody that knows me knows that i sit in meetings and i make notes i, I don't type or whatever it's a book and it's a pen but actually what I do is draw mind maps okay, and make my notes, order my thoughts, all of that. So, you know, the thing that I kind of read 20 odd years ago was Tony Buzan's book about mind mapping and what mind mapping can do for you. And it's the thing that I use daily to this day as a technique. I'm sure I don't use it as well as I should do. I'm sure there are derivations of it and people would look at my maps and my mind maps and think that they've got nothing to do with what Tony Buzan sort of set out but but actually that's kind of where I I, I go to and and 
you know, I don't think most people think in linear list terms. I think our thought processes are slightly more random and not joined up in, in that way. And I think you know, mind mapping is a fantastic technique for that non-linear thought process and developing actually or capturing a lot of information. You know, it's quite graphical, which also appeals to me. And so, so if there's one thing I've learned by kind of the, the textbook side of life, that's probably where I kind of come from. Oh, brilliant. And, and I've had other guests before like yourself who actually, I'm probably being a bit presumptuous, assuming that everyone reads, not reads, but everyone focuses on business books. Because like you say, there's a lot of periodicals and trade press. And, and actually, I guess, given being the, the sector you focused on, the, the, the mainstream media and uh, what absolutely. was going in, yeah, uh, yeah. going on in sort of the political landscape was probably the most, most important thing for you throughout. And my mapping up, just to touch on it, it's one of those things that I learned when I was a lot younger, but it seems to have, you don't hear about it as much anymore. It's not that something's replaced it, it just... It... Not to my knowledge, I mean, it may have done, you know. And, and you know, one or two colleagues have said, oh, there's a, you know, there's an app for that these days, you know, <laughs> use an app. And it's like, no, I like my pen and I like my paper and that works very well, thank you very much. Very last question then, and this is again, it's, it's a wrap up and it might be a, a chance just to reinforce some of the points you've highlighted. Yeah. It might be a, a chance to pick up on some of the things we didn't touch on because um, these conversations are never long enough to talk about everything. And it's very simply, you, you've got three people in front of you and, and those three people represent individuals at different stages in their consulting yeah, yeah. career. So you, the question is you can give one piece of advice to each of them and those three people are somebody who is just entering consulting. So call it a university lever or an early uh, sort of early analyst, you know, 21, 22. The second is is a manager, so the middle of consulting grades. Yep. And then the final one is take this one as you choose, really, but someone who is approaching partner or maybe someone like you were who's, yeah, yeah. who's thinking of going out on their own. And, and as I say, the, the question is quite simply, what is that one piece of advice that you would give to each? So the person start, starting out, the, the kind of the, the new consultant at the beginning of their career, I, I'd, I'd suggest there's no such thing as a kind of bad engagement. You learn from everything. And actually, my advice to you know anybody at that stage is, is be a sponge. You know, go, go and do the project, even on paper. If you think it's the, you know, the bad fit, the worst possible project, or whatever, you'll learn. You'll learn good, bad, and indifferent, but you'll learn. And for a while, just absorb. You know, there is no there is no such thing as a bad project at that stage. I think. I think for that person that's at the midpoint in their career, maybe well midpoint, but a few years in, four or five years in, that for me is the time when you need to start to think about your sort of sub-specialization, you know, it's the what are you going to be famous for type kind of question because mm. I think my personal experience, not only of myself but of colleagues around, is that it's at that point where you start to need to kind of have a recognizable name for something and you need to work out kind of what that something is and that doesn't always come naturally, you know, and I think, but I do think that if people can work that out and then can leverage for the want of a better term that then you know that is going to be an accelerator i think in their career i think for that person that's on the cusp of partnership i think back to myself so i i became a partner in 2001 and i actually had some great advice from people uh in kpmg at the time um but one thing i had to work out for myself was that i had this kind of view that you know when i became a partner all of my kind of engagements were going to run fantastically because they were all going to work to kind of you know, my method, as it were. 
And I learned very quickly that, that actually it was me that had to adopt and adapt to them, not them to me. And, you know, and by that, I mean, you know, if you're going to get the best out of people in terms of the way they lead projects, in terms of the way they manage engagements, in terms of the way they leverage and, and lead people themselves, you know, actually I had to work with them, not them work with me. So actually you don't have a modus operandi, you have four or five modus operandi. And it's kind of working out. So someone said to me, actually a very good friend to this day, KPMG partner in those days, was about taking risks. And the piece of advice was that it's okay to take risks, it's not okay to take uncontrolled risks. So what are, as a, as a new partner, what are your control structures for not taking uncontrolled risks, for controlling that, but doing so in a way that gives people freedom to manage projects in a way that you know, they feel comfortable with, that they're successful at, and you know, you're not shoehorning people into some sort of singular kind of control framework. But you have to have a control framework because if your touch point with a project is a few hours a week, you need to make sure that they're valuable a few hours a week. So does that answer your question? Certainly does, Rob, and I think gives us a great place to finish. So thank you very much. Pleasure. I really enjoyed this. And no, likewise. I think uh, it's, I'm very grateful to, to Stephen and Denver for introducing us. I think Indeed. It's been, uh, a fascinating conversation. And I think the, the only thing left to ask is for anyone who, who's listening to this and, yep. and wants to either find out more about you or get in touch about Garwood or your advisory work, where would you, where would you point them to? Where can they reach you? So um, probably two main routes. So come in either through my LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll find, me as, uh, you'll find me as Robert Garner, actually, but you'll find me on LinkedIn. Or alternatively, come in through Garwood Solutions website and you know, contact me that way. That's, that's fine. Fantastic, Rob. Well, as I said, really enjoyed that. And all that's left to say is thank you and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you very much. You too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.